0: Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order.
1: Hey, this is uh, Jeff Chang. Can't stop, won't stop. Listening to Rebel Radio with Josh Levine. Fuck you, Josh.
0: What's up? This is Rebel Radio. What up? What up? This is DJ Newmark. This is Tina Butterwolf.
1: It's your boy. It's okay.
0: Keep checking out Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Ah. Rebel Radio is going down. What did
2: you say? Rebel Radio?
0: Oh, wait. Let's do it again.
2: R-R-
3: Rebel
2: Radio. What's up, Rebels? Welcome back to Rebel Radio, the weekly show where I bring you the Rebels who are shaping our culture. I'm your host, Josh Levine. This week, we bring you part one of a two-part episode with the authors of Can't Stop, Won't Stop, the Young Adult Edition. Jeff Chang and David D Cook, they're DJs, academics, activists. Jeff was a founder of the Soul Sides crew, which brought us artists like DJ Shadow, Black Blackalicious, Lyrics Born. David D is a Bay Area underground hero. He's been on the air for many, many years. Um, on KPFA community radio as well as uh, his, he's well known for his charts that we talk about and he runs hiphopandpolitics.com This book is is one of my favorite books that I've read recently and probably my favorite thing I've ever read about hip hop is a chronicle of hip hop history from day one into the present. Uh, Extremely comprehensive and detailed and it not only talks about the music and, and the artists, but also the political and cultural context for hip hop becoming this global movement. You know, we, we think of hip hop as the story, at least I think of hip hop as the American dream come true, as well as America's nightmare. And ultimately it's the story of creativity and drive overcoming adversity. And this book digs into pivotal moments in hip hop's evolution that illustrate that point. So I encourage you to uh, dig in on this one. We're going to come back next week with part two, not only talking about some of the lessons that the guys learned, you know, uncovered in writing the book, but also what they learned in their process of of putting it together. It's a great interview and I hope you enjoy it. Let's go. that a little bit, I want to talk about the book, which I put up behind us, Can't Stop, Won't Stop. Yeah, yeah. it's dope. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, midway through it, uh, really enjoying it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I want to talk about all of it and, and go, go back a little bit into both of your history. Um, uh, you know, we've all known each other a long time. Jeff, I owe you um, a big debt that uh, you moving to the Bay got me my job at Herb when I was first graduating <laughs> college. Um, uh-huh. So, Uh you know, I think I had been writing for them freelance.
1: Yeah. And
2: then I happened to graduate right at the time that you were uh, quitting that job. And so there was a spot for me. And that that was one of those days that changed my life.
1: Oh, it's a beautiful thing, man. It's such a beautiful thing. And you did a hell of a job, man, with that. And now with all your work that you're doing, all your businesses and stuff.
2: Thanks, man. It's it's funny, you know, how this like, uh, I don't know, you know, for me, there's this, this community that, you know, just moving through it for me has been like one, one step after another, you know man Like somehow mm-hmm. or another, you know, I met Dave Paul. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. that led to meeting, you know, whoever else. Uh, and then, you know, somehow you and I met and that led to, you know, other things. And it's, I always say, you know, every good thing that's come to me definitely professionally But I think personally too, it's just been the result of relationships Yeah, and uh, knowing the right people is, that's a big part of it.
1: I love that we're still able to, to build like this, you know, all these years later and for sure, you know, just seeing what you've been able to do is just, it's, it's so great. It's so beautiful.
2: I appreciate it. What about you two before we get into the, the too deep with it? Um, obviously you guys have known each other a long time. How'd you come together to work on this project?
1: We, uh, you know, the book came out, the original book came out in 2005 and, uh, I was blessed enough for the book to kind of have a life and to, to, to get out there and and that kind of thing over the years. One of the, the, the greatest, you know, me and Dave's books were supposed to come out out at about the same time. Mm. Uh, and, um, I always, I always felt like if that had happened then, man, like it just would have been so amazing and so powerful um and uh and so you know my my um my editor uh who's just a brilliant woman monique patterson um came back to me about three years ago four years ago and was like you know we need to make the book available for a new generation Hmm. and so i was like man you know I, we get another chance at this. That's great. So I, I, first person I called up was Dave and was like, nice. let's do this. Let's like, like, let's, let's really, really make this happen. And I was, I was lucky enough for him to say yes. So that's cool. Here we are.
2: <laughs> that's very cool. Well, uh, um, I w- you guys have, you know, both, uh, such great histories as DJs, as journalists, as college professors, uh, social activists, you know, I, I think a lot of parallels, um, right. So I want to dig into the history a little bit, if you indulge me. Um, And I always like to kind of start at the very beginning. So I'm going to ask both of you, uh, do you remember the first record you ever bought? No.
3: First record I bought was um, Trans Europe Express. Okay. No, no. The first record I had bought for me with my parents picked up Trans Europe Express. The first record that I personally went and bought was Computer Games by Yellow Magic Orchestra. Oh, nice. That's the first breakbeat that I bought, and I still have that, believe it or not. Sure. Um, and then, you know, I, ha- I got a bunch of other records, you know, from downstairs records and all that, mm-hmm. and I had a pretty healthy collection of breakbeats which interestingly enough was stolen at Marcy Projects. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. so the story goes like this. I was in a crew and the crew was based in Marble Hill in the Promenade in mm. uh, the Riverdale section of the Bronx next to Kennedy High. And the there was a guy who was, called himself Jazzy J2 mm. and Arthur Marklin, Artie Art and our DJ was Steve Steve who lived in Marcy and they had the crew go out there and do a gig. And they did a gig and it was great. And they borrowed my records. You know, they had my breakbeats. And when the party was over, they got stuck. They got stuck up by people mm-hmm. who were at the party. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way it went in New York at that time, the, the fly way of robbing somebody was to be gracious and give them money to get on the subway. Hmm. So it's literally like, They robbed the crew and made them take off their shoes in the winter and thanked them for the party. And then in an act of uh, being gracious, gave everybody, you know, like a dollar or something like that to get on (laughs) the way. And so that
2: was, that's that's almost like more insulting.
3: Yeah. So my, my records were gone. So at the time, we uh, we had a couple of people that weren't there that night that were members of Zulu, you know, and they went back to Brooklyn to get the equipment.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Now, they came back with equipment. I don't know if it was the equipment that was stolen, but I never got my records back. And for a long, long time, when you mentioned Brooklyn, I would just be like... <laughs> you know shake my head and when you mentioned marcy projects there was like there was always this thing like and then you know of course you get somebody like Z years later marcy marcy and he would say it and i would always cringe because i really had i mean i have the list of all those records that i had because sure, i put them sure. in my rhyme book yeah. and it was just an impressive like i had i had some some records And the only reason like some of the other ones like my computer games didn't get stolen was because those were albums and I Mm -hmm. didn't give those albums they had all my 45s, you know, so I still have my original copy of um, I Just Want to Do My Thing, still have that one by Edwin Starr, Computer Mm -hmm. Games, I have my Trans Europe Express, I think I have, do I have a copy of Jam on the Groove, I I still have that one, Mm. but all that other stuff, single copies, downstairs records, ear hustling, sure. yeah, you know, because yeah. you, you had to know the names mm-hmm. of the records. So you're standing there in the corner and it might be somebody like flash in there. And, you know, and you're trying to hear like, what's the name? What songs he getting in? You'd be like, oh, I want Ring My Bells. It's like, oh, OK, um, what record you want, young blood? Uh, <laughs> Ring My Bells. OK. And then you get home and it's like a neat awards ring my bells like not a breakbeat you know so
2: that's how
1: it
2: was yeah wow jeff what about you well i can't top
1: that story at all (laughs) (laughs) i've heard parts of that story but i hadn't i knew uh i knew about the zulus going back to brooklyn part of the story but i hadn't heard the whole story that's a dope story dave that's cool sorry you had to live through that but it actually explains why I wasn't
3: there, I personally didn't experience the trauma, oh the you trauma,
1: yeah no. was just the records being taken, yeah, because mm-hmm. I didn't go that night, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. just mm-hmm. the yeah. records, yeah, just the records being taken, but I would never heard that that particular story um I so for me i you know, I probably i grew up uh, I grew up in Hawaii, so you know we had a lot of um a m radio yeah uh, type stuff, and um so you know came up with stuff like they played a lot of war and a lot of earth wind and fire and stuff like that and i feel like probably the first albums that we probably bought or i probably bought were like the KTEL records that mm. would have like a bunch of different tracks on um i think i might even still have the first one that i had it had it had like misdemeanor on it by foster silvers okay like Bay city rollers and stuff like that you know what i mean like uh, a mix of different folks. Tie a yellow ribbon. <laughs> <I was laughs> that one too. Um, I just know because that's when one we album I used to listen over and over again. But the first album I probably the first full album I probably really bought was um Earth Wind and Fire Spirit because mm. I really like Saturday night, that one song Saturday night and I was a kid and just you know that just fired my imagination. Um so yeah so those would be the probably the first two that I really remember.
2: I mean, there was definitely something to that, uh, you know, those early records that, you know, we just, you just used to spend so much time with those records, reading them, looking at them, playing them over and over, you know, it was, it was crazy. And it is such a, like, it seems like such a distance from the experience we have today with music, mm-hmm. um, just, you know, always at our fingertips and, and all that, but, you know, you go, I, I spend a lot of time
3: digging, but uh, digital digging. Sure. And, um there's an art to it, and there's a there's a there's an enjoyment, you know, um you know, like the last night I spent about two hours going through all of uh tall Black Brothers catalog, mm-hmm. you know, and finding like his early stuff and going on band camp and ch- tracking down remixes, you know, and mm-hmm. you know, and then trying to find records that he may have used and that and so. It is what you make it i mean sure you know i didn't have to go to 15 different record stores right you know and i have software to grab some of it and i pay for some of it and yeah you know and then you might even add your own flavor to it but um it was a good two or three hours in the middle of the night out of my time you know listening to stuff and trying to discover it and then also thinking like how am i going to apply this like when i get Mm. off the show Mm. i'm definitely going to be you know going in the mix and Mm -hmm trying to place those records together. And, and that's a fun thing. Sure. Um, you know, it's better than having to be on the subway, go to the <laughs> bus, go to the other store. You only got one copy of that record. I need the second one. You got to go to another city. That's right. And then you got to come back and catalog the records and then play them. You know, we save time.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and there's... Um, you know, I think there's just there's a difference between what we used to have to do and what we can choose to do, right? And and it's uh, you know there's no, um, I, you know, no one's mad. I think at the convenience of not having to do everything you just said. But yeah. I also think like, um, you know, we sometimes we trade off some experiences that we might be giving up in the, in the meantime. In, in like like what it, what
3: experiences? What do you what do you feel we're missing?
2: Well, look, I think um, most people don't do what you just talked about, right? And and I think, you know, for, for kids coming up today, I know, you know, for me, probably you guys that, you know, 8, 10 years old up to, you know, mid-20s, you're just like, music is everything and you're, you're constantly looking for that new record or, you know, that was a lot of what your friendships are based on. And, mm-hmm. you know, I had this homeboy, I just connected with my best friend from fifth grade on Facebook. Um, and we hadn't spoken since like eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, every Friday we used to sit there and make our top 10 list from mm-hmm. the tracks we heard on on uh, on KML, KSOL. Yeah. Um, right, and, uh, and so it was just, you know, so that thing of like, you're saving up your money. So to answer your question, Dave, right? Like you're saving up your money to get that those one or two new releases that came out on a Tuesday. You had to get there. Uh, like you were talking about, you had to no know to ask for them, or you had to be cool with the dude behind the counter mm-hmm. uh that would kind of help you through that. You had to, you know, a lot of times uh they didn't have you couldn't listen to it before you got it home, right? So you had to kind of take on faith from the cover or from what label it was on or whatever mm-hmm. you knew about it. And you know, on the one hand, like that's a terrible inconvenience. It's it's a, not an efficient way to spend your time at all. On the other hand, like that scarcity, we all know the psychology of that, right? Scarcity creates uh, attraction, right? And the fact that you had something that everybody didn't have made it meaningful. The fact that you mm-hmm. couldn't get it because maybe it was sold out or you didn't have the money that week or whatever those things are, that right. creates meaning in our lives, and, and so I'm not saying that, it's not a good or bad thing, right? You know, I, right? And, but I am saying like when we trade those things away, we, we give up certain things with it, right? Mm-hmm. And so the flip side to me is like, I can listen to any song I want to right now as soon as I think of it, it's in my phone. Right. Yeah. You know, that's, a, that's brilliant. Like I, I started a playlist about a year ago that's because I wake up most mornings with a song playing in my head. It's right. always something different. Sometimes it's something I don't like. Sometimes it's something I love. And I just was like, I'm gonna add it to a playlist, like instantly when I wake up. Like, oh, that's that song, right? And that's super fun. And you yeah. can never do that, you know, uh, without this kind of easy access. So it's not, I'm not saying it's good or bad. It just changes, I think, our relationship to to music.
3: Well, you know, the flip side to that is that there was a group of people probably on a podcast like this josh if there was a podcast back in the days <laughs> with folks going these boys don't know what they're missing now when we came up for sure jeff played the trombone you know dave played the piano and uh josh played the drums that's right and that's how we bonded because we were actually in a band and those folks yeah. were like, these kids got it easier, they're just buying records we have to make the music
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know you can't get enough of Rebel Radio. Check us out over on the stereo app. I'm doing a series of live social conversations with some guests I've had on this show as well as some other friends. We're calling it Trade Secrets where we're uncovering career and business tips that you can use today in your, in your lives. Um, they're short conversations and the cool thing about it is you can join in. You can leave comments, ask questions, be part of the conversation with us. Go to stereo.com slash rebelradionet, follow us along, and I hope you'll join us there. You know, so much of our relationship to music, to, to whatever, is, is generational. It has to do with what's happening in our lives at the time or mm-hmm. what's happening in the greater cultural context at the time, right? And, you know, we have, there's a generation gap in hip hop you know, with, uh, the 16 year olds that are making records today versus the cats that we grew up with, you know, uh, same, same with the fans, um, all of that. And I think, you know, I, I'm a firm believer there's no such thing as good music. There's only what you love and mm-hmm. what you love is largely influenced by what the people around you loved or what was playing on the radio or where the culture was at that time. Right. Um, and so, you know, all, all that has an impact. Um, so before we get into that, though, let me, let me ask you this, both of you. When did you discover and fall in love with hip hop? Do you remember that, that moment or that experience?
3: For me, it was probably... I think it's a very thin line between the first time I was exposed to it
2: mm-hmm.
3: and when I fell in love with it. You know, and I wouldn't know that I was falling in love with it. I would just say sure. that this was something that I was I was digging. Um, it probably had to be around June of 76, being on the Circle Line boat, um, which goes up the Hudson River. And mm. there was a guy playing music. You know, there was an actual DJ on the boat, and he kept playing jam on the groove. And he kept playing the, the drum part over and over and over again. And people were doing you know, these little drop down to the floor, knee behind the back. I've since been told it was called the corkscrew. <laughs> um, but we just called it breaking at the time, and that's sure. what people were doing. I didn't know what they were doing when I saw it. it was like, what are they doing? It's mm-hmm. like, you're breaking. What's that? Man, that's breaking. But um, I like the, the energy of that, you know? And then later, there was a gentleman by the name of Arnold who lived in our neighborhood who, you know, his... Uh, his cousin is Disco King Mario or his distant cousin is, 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 is first cousin is more, more or less, you know, direct to him. Mm -hmm. And Arnold came from the same area, you know, the Soundview section of the Bronx. And he's the one that brought all that information to us um, about, look, this is what's going on. This is what's happening and blah, blah, blah. And that's how we got, you know, exposed to it, you know, was from him bringing that, that information uh, to us and, you know, I remember, you know, us being in the back of our building, you know, trying to do these dances that came out mm-hmm. and uh, really being enamored with these tapes that we would hear. Mm-hmm. And those tapes were generations upon a generation upon a generation. And you don't know that at that at a, that age. Right. You just know, like, I like what this is and who is that? And that's that's the L brothers, you know, mm-hmm. and that's um, who is who we hear. Fantastic, you know. Uh, it would be grand with the theater on the fantastic 5 it wasn't even romantic so you would hear these things and and then you know eventually it was like I want to rap too you know and I want to do this and I started making pause button tapes and 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 actually started emceeing.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, my first my MC name initially was MCDC and uh people's like you don't want to be MCDC and <laughs> You know, you want to kind of change that up a little, and so then <laughs> it became DVD. And you know, for me, the rest is history. So I became pretty good at that. Sure. And I still have some of those pause button tapes, but you know, that time period of just loving it was something that, um, you know, it's it's blurred. You don't. Mm-hmm. There's no one moment. I would say where hip hop became an absolute companion you know like yo this is my dog this is this is you know i don't like to use the word this is it saved my life but my family broke up
2: Mm -hmm.
3: and my senior year in high school i was pretty much you know back home i stayed with my grandparents but i was on my own and dealing with the fact that my mom my sister and father were no longer together even in the same space. My mom was out here. My sister was in Florida and I was in New York. Mm. And so I was alone in that regard because it didn't happen gradually. It happened explosively. And so the companion was going to those parties. And it was um, that energy of hip-hop and being around at that time. And as crazy as that time was in terms of, of uh, not having that familial infrastructure, um, I wouldn't trade it for anything because it meant that I moved back to Soundview. Mm. I was around the heart of all that, you know, right across the street from the projects at its zenith when all this stuff is jumping off and all this energy, um, which, you know, years later you get to really, really appreciate like, wow, I was, I got to be a part of that ethos that was exploding I got to uh, see that and and witness it you know as a fly on the wall and sometimes as a participant so that I think you know retrospect when I look back and definitely when I moved out here that was like that's the fond memory Mm. like that's the my memory to New York goes back to that last year of uh, of of having that this thing called hip-hop as a constant companion a, a, a you know the, the 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 main stable thing in my life at that time
2: sure sure mm-hmm. Jeff what about you
1: Whew. um i'm just i mean i've known dave for uh, a long time um longer than many people have been alive and i'm just like you're pulling it all out of him today josh <laughs> <laughs> like i haven't yeah, heard man that's many- great this is amazing um, I'm gonna to listen to this one again for sure um, you know for me I, I I came to hip-hop probably like a lot of other folks who didn't grow up didn't have the, the blessing to and the curse right because it's it's both right to have been uh, growing up in in the Bronx as Dave did during that particular mm-hmm. period sure that's um, why I look up to my big brother so much too and how much I've learned from from a man over the years. Um, but I came to hip hop as a lot of other people did. I think pretty, pretty much like around the world, like I'm, I'm probably closer to the experience of a hip hop fan that comes to hip hop, you know, after it gets distributed, you know, via like records, like Rapper's Delight. And then the movies that the kind of hip hop exploitation movies that come out in the early eighties. Yeah. Um, and that's when, I, that's when every, you know, every kid at my school um, is like wanting to, 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 you know, be like Run DMC and, um, you know, people are, are really like taking up spray cans and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, learn how to dance like they do in the Bronx. Um, and, uh, and, you know, that's, that's sort of when, you know, the thing that, um, Dave and them built, right, like comes out to, to the masses, um you know, uh, me, a kid growing up in, in Honolulu, Hawaii, in the middle of the Pacific, just like a kid maybe in Paris, France, who's, Mm -hmm. you know, a minority kid, a North African kid, or, or an Arab Arab kid is growing up and needing to, to find a, uh, uh, an outlet. So, um, so that's more of my, more of my kind of thing. And, And it's, uh, yeah, it's just a beautiful
2: continuity of things. Absolutely. Um, shift gears a little bit it, it, you know, you guys have had both these amazing careers. Um, you know, I consider it a blessing to be able to, to work in a space that's based around this culture that we love. Um, and so I, I wonder for you guys, <clears throat> how much was there a game plan, uh, at the beginning you know, as your career started taking shape. And and if you look back now, like, how closely did it go according to plan? I mean, Dave, I know you started out as a rapper, so maybe uh maybe things have diverged a little bit from there. But um but yeah, it was a you know, I like for myself there's been a lot of one foot in front of the other. And, you know, I've learned I think to become more of a planner and the more I've had people relying on me, you know, family and staff and all that, right? My approach has gotten a little bit different, but still, you know, to some extent, I'm, I'm a little bit of a go with the flow kind of person. So what about you guys?
3: Well, I mean, MCing was not a career option at all sure. when I came up. So yeah. that was something that you just did. And, you know, the context is, you got to remember I'm one of thousands of people Right. It's like if we talk about now, you know, like we're one of thousands of people with a podcast and one of thousands of people with an iPhone. And, you know, so it was, you know, I don't want to make it seem like, yo, man, I was putting in that work. There were elders and there were superstars sure. and there were um, people that you actually looked up to. It was like one day I'm gonna be like the co crush. Mm-hmm. You know, one day I'll be like flashing them. So those were the people blazing down the trails and we just soaked up stuff and tried to. Be like them. Mm -hmm. But with that being said, you know, I came out to Cal to be an engineering major. Um, And I was an engineering major. I was in the College of Computer Science and Electrical Engineering. And my dream at the time was to do something that now you can easily do on, uh, you know, with a video graphics card and and a computer. But at the time, I I actually was in school to try and figure out how you could do a real life scale replica of something that you might find akin to you know grand theft auto you know Mm. we're going through imaginary cities but you know that was the dream and that was where my imagination took me so I was out here trying to do that my shift from emceeing to DJing came because when I moved out here people were like that's cool But, you know, I'm not trying to stand around and hear you do that all day. And (laughs) and I didn't have access or equipment and do all that other stuff anyway. But I did have access, you know, to people and was, you know, and was able to start DJing. And so I morphed into that. Um, In terms of career path, I think it was when I started doing the radio station Calyx Mm -hmm. and started doing my newsletter you know, around that time to bring attention to the show. And the doors begin to open because of the writing that was Mm -hmm. being done on those newsletters. I didn't like writing, but I figured people would read something that I had to say other than a flyer. And that's what kind of opened the doors and got me the position at KPFA. Mm -hmm. That's what made me, that was allowed me to uh, meet Alex Mejia who then forwarded these newsletters to the program director that came L and got me there mm-hmm. that's how i met public enemy and you know and chuck d and have that close friendship and they opened a lot of doors so it was those newsletters that kind of was like wow this is opening doors and and i can maybe see a a path where i can do exactly what i enjoy doing mm. and actually make a living out of it and so i continued on that path then you know, eventually, you know, gave up the idea of trying to do engineering, um, and you know, wound up getting out of school with a degree in social science and that whole thing. And here we are, you know, having looked back and haven't really thought about doing anything else other than what I'm doing. That is based around the thing I'm I, I have love for.
1: Mm-hmm. And I just want to say, like, the influence of Dave's uh, Dave's. Uh, charts, like playlists and stuff like that, was huge because at that time, it's it's impossible to kind of imagine now, but the record stores, like if you went in there, you wouldn't know where to start. Like mm-hmm. if you were kind of um, a fan of hip hop. And I had a, I had a leg up because I worked at Calyx, too. I came in a little bit. Maybe maybe Dave and I came in about the same time, but I was on a different kind of, of a path. Um, although we work together a lot of different types of things. And, um, but Dave's list and Dave's show was like one of uh, a, a network of really, really important shows that got started around that same time. There was the drum show with Kevi Kev at KZSU. There was KPOO, which was a community station, black, all black station. And mm-hmm. I, I want to say between like, between Kev and Dave and, KPOO, like you got the real hip hop stuff. And then Dave was the only one to actually make a list out of it. So I'd be down there every week walking past, you know, the record store on the way to classes and stopping in and checking out, you know, oh, okay, Dave's got this up here and that kind of thing. And so I got this, is, this is a record I got to check for. And then he added these little notes and, and uh, the notes became a column. In this magazine that was called the Bay Area Music Magazine, Bam Magazine, mm-hmm. um, and the column became a platform for to talk about hip hop and politics. Um, so I just say all that to say, like Dave, um, Dave for me, like was my model of hip hop journalism before any of our magazines that you and I were able to kind of kind of come in and work on, mm-hmm. you know, later on with Herb, and then before that, like the Source, and you know, other things, Rap Pages, Vibe, all these other magazines that kind of came along later. Um Dave was writing about the music and then also bringing in different types of factoids like artists doing this and doing that and the kind of work that they were doing in the community and all these kinds of things. So it was super, super, super important. And, uh, you know, like Dave, I didn't necessarily see this. I saw it as like, this is, I love to do this, um, play records. I, I love to, uh, I, I started writing for the CalX station guide. I did a a story on Graffiti in the Bay, which was jumping off at the time, as you remember, because you were there. Um, And, uh, you know, folks like Crayon and TWS and, you know, um, our man Dream, you know, like uh, our hero Dream, may rest in peace. um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, Bam and Estria and all my my friends from Hawaii uh, were doing the thing, and that's what I wrote about. And that gave me, like, the juice to kind of think, oh, maybe I can – I can, I can do this, but I, I was not on that track, uh, until much, much, much later, um, right. uh, after having, you know, a few failed careers, um, including one as a, a, a small time indie hip hop mogul. <laughs> so, <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> uh, well, you know, right. Like we did the soul sides thing. Yeah. And... I didn't think that was failed.
2: I, I, nah, I mean, I, mean... the,
1: the, the artists are by no means like. You know, Black Alicious yeah, lyrics, shadow, lyrics. yeah, and DJ Shadow, right? Of uh, like these folks are no failures, and, and I, I hold it up, but I, I didn't succeed necessarily as becoming the next uh, Diddy of of indie hip hop because I just was never cut out for that. I just wasn't. Um, so, yeah, but you were before I, Diddy. I mean. Uh, I think I think Diddy was maybe around the same time,
2: so the same same time 90, frame. Diddy was ninety four. City, college,
1: City was college? college was like wasn't he late? Wasn't he earlier than that? Wasn't City College like eighty nine or ninety one? Not to yeah, but
3: he wasn't whatever, you know, City rec- City wasn't doing college record stuff. And, yeah, but I, yeah. I don't
2: know. Well, t- talk about talk about that if you, if you don't mind. I, I, that's interesting. Um, tell me about you know, again, from the outside, uh, you know, you guys made great records, important records, you know, artists that, you know, are still doing their thing to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, tell me about the decision to move away from, I guess it was quantum by the time you, you shut it down. Right. Oh,
1: yeah, no, it wasn't quantum yet. It, Sides, we shut down Qu- sides and then they were able to lift up quantum um I was probably 98 or something like that
2: but okay so well, when you say you weren't cut out for it what was what did you yeah. learn that led you to that and, and and what did you learn just from the experience that you've taken with you since then
1: it's oh, a good question these are really good questions um you know I it was it was a group of us trying to you know who are friends and and trying to sort of we just like had a passion for the music um and I think, you know, I was older than all of them, but I was still finding my way in terms of, you know, whatever so-called career and that kind of thing. I might still be trying to find my way, I guess, (laughs) just later. Um, I, you know, I taught for I taught for many years at Stanford and mentored a lot of young folks and people would come to me and be like, how did you get to where you went to be? You know, where you got to be. And I'd be like, you don't want that. (laughs) Stop that. You don't want that. You just don't want to. You don't wanna go there. I'm not I don't regret a single second of any of it because it means that I'm still able to be homies with you. Like Dave and I have had this like rich and deep relationship for, for decades. I'm still mm-hmm. very close. We didn't end up like a behind the music, you know, documentary. I'm still <laughs> close right. to, to all the guys in the crew. So um, so that's a beautiful thing. I would have rather had that than than to have like blown up under the Soul Size name. Um, And everybody went on to have these really long and they're still going uh, amazing careers. Um, But, you know, for for me, in terms of that particular moment, like uh, I just, you know, we we maybe made some business decisions that um, didn't fit into the marketplace at that particular moment. And, um, you know, uh, uh, and I didn't necessarily have the skill set to be able to kind of. Uh, continue to do that nor did i really i'll just say this i i didn't have the fire in the belly probably to 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 be able to 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 do that and um and that was kind of a revelation right and it came to me really late you know um but it's all good because like all of the stuff that we were able to to do together you know i took that into everything that i've i've done ever since you know the the passion for hip hop and for staying up late at night and arguing about records and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Like I still have that kind of fire, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I still have the the fire to be able to kind of make sure that I'm lifting up, you know, the best of the thinkers and the artists and folks who are making beautiful things right in the world. And I'm able to do that in all these other kinds of ways. And, uh, and certainly every bit of that experience has gone into like being a mentor and teaching, which is probably one of the things I just love most in, in life. Um, so being able to pass that on, um, that's, that's probably the calling that Mm. I found after all that time. That's cool. You know, one one of the things
3: you learn is at a certain point, you understand that this music Mm -hmm. business is a very grimy business Mm. and you come into it eyes wide open and you're bushy tailed and you're doing what you do and you go uh, you go down the road a certain way. And then one day you hit a corner and you're like, mm. you know, this is the music business.
2: Mm-hmm, so, sure.
3: I mean, you know, being at Calix and, you know, folks showing up one day, like you better play our record or else, and you're like, wow, this is this is what this is about. Mm -hmm. and you know luckily we had big Nate Copeland there (laughs) who was um who was like you know actually a correction officer at the time Mm -hmm. so he was in uniform and you know and Nate was you know about that life so we didn't have to deal with that at that moment but you also started to understand that um this was an industry that it got pretty grimy pretty quick sure and you had to um Learn to navigate it in ways that, you know, I don't think people fully understand, you know, um, based upon your position. You also have, you know, depending on what side of the coin you are, people may be at a label like, get it on air. I don't care what you do. Mm-hmm. That's why you better have the stomach for it, you mm-hmm. know, because you're walking up to somebody and they're like, sure, I'll play your record, but I need. You know, a bag of weed, a bag of Coke, and, you know, two tickets to the, you know, that sort of thing. That's that grimy thing sure. that nobody wants to talk about when it gets on particular levels in the game. And um, and that's just one city. You know, every city got uh, a taxation process mm-hmm. that people have to go through. And so I think when um, you kind of understand that and you're able to navigate it and, more importantly, navigate it in a way where you keep your integrity and even better don't have to go through some of those rings. That's an accomplishment. And that's also a good thing. And hopefully others are able to pick up and learn from it. Um, I say all that to say that we're lucky that we lived in the Bay area where having an independent market and people who doing independent records, whether it was soul sides or your living legends or your, your high Rows and so many others, your two shorts is that, People were able to find a path where they didn't necessarily have to go through that sort of rigmarole, or, you know, to the degree that you may have had to go through in other places. And, you know, and and because the day was the day, um, it helped people find a, a way to 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 uh to get through that without having to go down these uh traditional doors, which oftentimes left um, you know, you had a bottleneck and you also left people either jaded or just completely, Mm. you know, upended. Mm -hmm. So, you know, here we were lucky with 3000 miles away from a lot of that. Um, We're in a big place, even though it seems small, but the Bay is, you know, deceptively small. It's actually a large place. Mm -hmm. And there were also a lot of markets that we were able to do things in. Um, We had the luxury of white kids and Asian kids and Latino kids all loving hip hop. And so pretty soon the industry realized that they could sell a lot of records here, but we knew that early on and, you know, and just seeing the brilliance of people going, Hmm, I think I'll spend a week in Fairfield to sell records and I'll go to Santa Rosa and do that. And never even having to leave the Bay Mm -hmm. to, 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 to have some sort of, you know, success, um, is something that I I'm thinking maybe people are just starting to realize how lucky they were to be in this backyard where you could do so much and not have to get um, really jaded and and upended by having to go to other places where the stakes were high. Mm -hmm. And the goal was something that I think early on, we figured, I don't need radio play, I don't need to be on TV, I don't need these types of things, I can sell 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 records here keep the money, buy a house and be very comfortable in a place that everybody wants to come to. If you live in the bay, you're not trying to necessarily leave. You're like, I'm already here. So let me put my stakes down and be happy. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And um, look at all the stuff that came out of it, magazines, you know, projects and, and a legacy that I think has stood the test of time.
2: Sure. Yeah, that's a great perspective. Um, I want to take a little detour since you guys mentioned uh, diddy and kind of the, the business side. And I think, you know, <clears throat> as I, as I read through the book, like, it's, it's really interesting. Like, I, you know, I think you have, you have hip hop as music, you have hip hop as a cultural political movement, and you have hip hop as a cultural, as a, as a commercial force. Mm-hmm. Right. I think in, in a lot of ways, you know, like everything in our world, the commercial has overshadowed some of the other things or it does from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as I hear you, you talking about that and, and you know, I think it's clear that um, there are moments or there are people in the history of hip hop that, uh, that made it what it is today, at least in terms of the the economic side uh, and, and the cultural side and, you know, Diddy being one of those, you know, Russell Simmons, Suge Knight, uh, you know, people like that who changed the game, you know, Jay and Dame, right? Um, who who took things, you know, the the reason that every kid on earth has hip hop in their ears and their lives in, in some form or fashion today is in part because of, you know, some of those those people and those moments. Mm-hmm um i'm curious for you you know your perspective on that and and you know you having having chronicled like you know all of hip-hop's uh evolution what are the moments that stand out to you as most uh pivotal mm, mm-hmm, mm. Wow. um
1: you know i i think uh um, I think, you know, Sylvia Robinson, you know, um, recognizing what it might take, uh, to be able to get this sort of Bronx slash New York, Black New York sound, um, you know, to the world. Uh, this is probably the first, you know, piece, like every, every time I teach, um, you know, hip hop history. We actually spend a little bit of time contrasting, you know, um, the moment, the tapes, the tapes that, that people used to make, right. Of the recordings that Dave was referring to earlier. Um, and, uh, and then to contrast that with what the early records sounded like, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of them were just routines that were being put to a house band. Um, you know, kind of house funk band um, beat, right? Just playing the disco songs of the day. And, um, you know, they didn't really jump off, but um, Rapper's Delight being so artificial by the standards of of the hip hop scene at that time, you know, actually being something that somebody in like Serbia could listen to, you know, or... Right. Or you know any part of Scandinavia or or Hong Kong listen to and be like oh wow that's really cool you know um, probably that's the first and then you know if we had to maybe go through high moments you know the the moment where where um, you know Run DMC and Russell and Rush Arts, you know kind of figure out or Rush you know Rush Media whatever they called themselves at the time Rush mm-hmm. Artist Management figure out like oh we could sell Adidas shoes like it's not just about selling records anymore it's about right. selling this whole thing um that's you know that's another kind of point and then i think you know diddy's like crucial to to kind of cross that over to a broader market um where like everybody can buy into it especially um young women um mm-hmm. can can it's not this is not like a um, just a, a male thing but this encompasses like soul which you know um, a lot of women you know listen to and, and that all of this attitude can be captured and and that kind of takes it to of certain other level and you can kind of take it all the way on up to to these days and thinking about just the way that the artists have changed the game and been able to use the internet and this is sort of where we leave the story off right is how the industry like com- completely kind of shuts down and closes down on itself like starts to stamp out mixtapes starts to really like fight against the creativity that makes hip-hop mm-hmm. and artists turn around and find a new way through their own you know kind of mixtapes and their direct to direct to consumer kind of relationship right mm-hmm. the, you to know, see relationship as as you would learn in in business school or whatever um that 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 direct relationship becomes um, a way to like bring in new voices, a new generation um, into the space, and make new sort of um, moguls of, of of this all, where the artist is really centered um, for once and finally, um, and that and what that means in terms of uh, blackness and the way that black artists can move from um, being the exploited to to being you know the folks who can. Uh, dictate the the terms of their careers um, in a stronger way than a lot of other folk. That's like the extension of our era and in industry rule 4080. Um, there's a direct sure. line. And, and I think for, for us to kind of be able to see that arc at this particular moment um, is a pretty powerful thing to kind of see the growth that's happened.
2: I mean, it's interesting we're having this conversation today. I don't know if you saw the news, but um, Kanye was announced yeah. as a his net worth at 6.6 billion making him i think the the wealthiest black entertainer on the planet.
3: Yeah. Um you know there's a whole thing that we could talk about with Kanye, you know, <laughs> for sure. That's his <laughs> well, own book. Well, podcast, right. <laughs> well, no, no. I mean, you know, I mean Kanye 3 years ago was on the internet, you know, on Twitter you know, asking Mark Zuckerberg yep. to give him a million dollars. And, you know, and he was arguing with Sway, you know, to get doors open. And, you mm-hmm. know, sure. and he did it and we can celebrate that. Um, but I want to come back to the thing with Jeff, uh, Please. because you mentioned Diddy and all that. And and I think those are success stories. And, um, and there are certain paths that they took where they, you know, blazed the trail for themselves. But at the same time, you know, I'm going to look at people like M.C. Hammer and Mm. recognize the path that him and his brother Lewis, you know, blazed, um, which, you know, they're almost written out of history books, um, Mm. because when they were doing uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken commercials and doing endorsements, it was before anybody else and people laughed when they were doing the troop outfits. Right. And I and I'll say it, you know, um, they were sabotaged by competitors who put out a rumor and said that those troop outfits were owned by the Klan. Mm -hmm. And what wasn't, what wasn't, what wasn't talked about Mm -hmm. was the fact that Hammer and and his brother Lewis in particular had opened up 40 troop stores in malls all around the country. Mm -hmm. And so for the first time you saw, you know, you can go to a store and just buy a particular outfit. This Mm -hmm. was them. That's the area hustle, right? I'm looking at, uh you know you talk about how far it could go um i'm looking at egyptian lover and uncle jam's army and the ascension that these folks had with mccola records and definitely i remember egypt talking about uh something on the new music seminar where he was asked you know this is the first time you're hearing west coast artists when he was asked about uh you know what he was going to do with his records and he was he was saying i own my stuff this is my records and i remember him saying something to the effect that he didn't mind if they bootlegged his records because that meant more promotion for him mm-hmm. so let's contrast that with some of the artists like the crash crew and others who were traveling around the world and finding that sylvia robinson as brilliant as she was was also part of an industry that was exploitative Mm -hmm. and that had bootlegged their records and they were seeing albums, you know, Mm -hmm. of, of things they didn't even know they put out. And they're like, yo, we didn't get paid. You Mm -hmm. know, so you had these fights that they were having, whereas our West coast counterparts, and this is not to compare and say one's better than the other, but they had the benefit of learning and they also had the situation of not being able to depend upon an industry. So you had to really do for self and, you know, and so seeing or remembering Greg, you know, Broussard or Egypt say, hey man, you know, when I saw that they had bootlegged my records, this is more, this is like publicity. This is like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, a way for me to, you know, what did he say? He said, when I heard that my records were bootleg, that meant I could do shows in that market where it was mm-hmm. selling, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, that's you know, right. fig- figuring out how to, um, how to, how to flip that. I bring that up because that's a method that I use, you know, people were like, Hey man, somebody took one of your articles off your website and they put it in the magazine. Mm-hmm. You should get paid. And it was like, well, I might be able to get paid 50 bucks or I can just say, put my email and my website there and now all of a sudden instead of paying a publicist Mm -hmm. you know to do work for me in a place like toronto i got a magazine in toronto that is you know running my articles in fact run another one do it for free Mm -hmm. and the next thing you know i get to go to toronto you know because people know your name so just that understanding that we're part of an ecosystem and it's a give and take and it's an ebb and flow and you know you give a little to get a little and uh and and seeing those moments seeing um the dance aspect show up at the san francisco ballet you mm-hmm. know was a moment mm-hmm. to me to say hip-hop had come seeing dominique de prima you know on primetime, you know nbc tv doing home turf yeah. with an indication that that was you know, hip hop that was, was gonna be it was gonna be big. Seeing um um I wanna say with Jam on the Groove, you know, the mm-hmm. the, the off Broadway um dance thing that they had with Fable and Boogaloo Shrimp and all those folks. Those were big moments and we should uplift those and celebrate them because they blazed a path, mm-hmm. you know, uh that I think have almost been written out and replaced by the corporate, you know, the sure. You know, the Clyde Davis, Tommy Matola. you know, um, uh, you know, uh, um, what's the guys, Jimmy Ivine, you mm-hmm. know, their ascension, but those ascensions come those ascensions come, but remember it's hip hop that saved their careers, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like they opened doors. It was more like, Oh, we can make money in this arena.
0: Right. And,
3: and these folks were on their way. So I'm looking at all those different moments, you know, the independent artistry that comes out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at uh, somebody like hammer going back to him again. You know, we talk about Wu-Tang, but I remember when hammer, you know, with offered this deal at at capital. and it's like, "Hey, we got a deal. Do you have any other artists? Mm-hmm. And he's like, uh, let me take whole frat whole my dancers let mm-hmm. me take you know he started taking his dancers sure. which he had no plan to and made them groups so that he could get those deals and you know and then years later you saw the Wu-Tang and others you know be able to build off that and and take it to the next level Yeah. so you know there's dozens of those stories I'm sure if you go to Houston there would be similar type of stories with rap a lot and how they emerge and mm-hmm. if you go to Miami you see Luke um, they would see those similar stories. And of course, it would be because he was taught by Egypt, you know, who went out there and you would see it in New Orleans and in Detroit, and all those little enclaves, where people were basically coming off the block and trying to figure out how they can get from point A became magical moments where they saw it to themselves, like I might be able to do something. Mm -hmm. And the trick was, where was your goal to get on Broadway? to get in new york to be on the big station you know in the big apple or was your goal to make enough money that you could just pay your bills and maybe mm-hmm. buy a house and in some places people were satisfied with the independence and, right. and keeping it that way in other places it was like i want to be part of um, this this larger system but all of those things should be celebrated and uh, you know i celebrate them at least
2: nice yeah, sure i like that Yeah, that was part one with Jeff Chang and Davy D. Cook, the authors of Can't Stop, Won't Stop. Order you a copy of Can't Stop, Won't Stop right now and uh, make sure you come back next week for part two. Join us in the Stereo app. It's stereo.com slash rebel radio. We'll be hosting live conversations. You can jump in, ask questions, uh, give your thoughts, et cetera, et cetera. We want to hear from you.